Hi, this is Randy Landry, and this is my 15th podcast in Common Sense and Ramblings in America. Um, Today I'm going to be discussing the Second Amendment, how our government is waging war on the Second Amendment, and what that means for us. Um, So I am going to um, read one of my articles that I posted on my blog, um, common-sense-in-america.com. So to start with, the Second Amendment is the right to bear arms, and most people know about that. It's, uh, this is how it was written. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, um, this is pretty simple. Okay? It means you can't mess with our guns. But they've been doing this for decades, and the left has been against it for a long time, as I said. Gun policy is among the most controversial topics in the United States. Acts of gun violence, particularly mass shootings of unarmed innocents, shake us to our core. What can we or should we do about it? To many, the answer is to enact more restrictions on legal access to firearms. Advocates on this side of the debate propose measures such as stricter eligibility requirements for age and mental health, more thorough background checks, longer waiting periods, fewer authorized sellers, strict liability for gun manufacturers, and or bans on various firearms and firearm accessories. Others mindful of government's failure to protect people, especially in gun-free zones and cities, are skeptical that tighter restrictions will improve public safety. They believe that reducing legal access to guns for law-abiding adults weakens the ability of people to both protect themselves from crime and defend their rights from growing encroachment by any government emboldened to abuse its authority. How the NRA rewrote the Second Amendment. The founders never intended to create an unregulated individual right to a gun. Today, millions believe they did. Here's how it happened. A fraud on the American public. That's how American Chief Justice Warren Burger described the idea that the Second Amendment gives an unfettered individual right to a gun. When he spoke these words to PBS in 1990, the rock-ribbed conservative pointed by Richard Nixon was expressing the longtime consensus of historians and judges across the political spectrum. Twenty-five years later, Berger's views as, seems as quaint as a powdered wig. Not only is an individual right to a firearm widely accepted, But increasingly, states are also passing laws to legalize carrying weapons on streets, in parks, in bars, even in churches. Many are startled to learn that the Supreme Court didn't rule that the Second Amendment guarantees an individual's right to own a gun until 2008. When District of Columbia v. Heller struck down the Capitol's law effectively banning handguns in the home. In fact, Every other time the court had ruled previously, it had ruled otherwise. Why such a head-snapping turnaround? Don't look for answers in dusty law books or the arcane reaches of theory. So how does legal change happen in America? We've seen some remarkably successful dives in recent years. Think of the push for marriage equality or to undo campaign finance laws. Law students might be taught that the court is moved by powerhouse legal arguments or subtle shifts in doctrine. The National Rifles, Rifle Association's long crusade to bring its interpretation of the Constitution into the mainstream 
teaches a different lesson. Constitutional change is the product of public argument and political maneuvering. The pro-gun movement may have started with scholarship, but then it targeted public opinion and shifted the organs of government. By the time the issue reached the Supreme Court, the desired new doctrine fell like a ripe apple from a tree. The Second Amendment consists of just one sentence, a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be abridged. Today, scholars debate its bizarre comma placement, trying to make sense of the various clauses, and politicians routinely declare themselves to be strong, the strongest supporters. But in the grand sweep of American history, this sentence has never been among the most prominent constitutional provisions. In fact, for two centuries, it was largely ignored. The amendment grew out of the political tumult surrounding the drafting of the Constitution, which was done in secret by a group of mostly young men, many of whom had served together in the Continental Army. Having seen the chaos and mob violence that followed the Revolution, these Federalists feared the consequences of a weak central authority. They produced a charter that shifted power at the time in the hands of the states to a new national government. Anti-Federalists opposed this new Constitution, the foes worried, among other things, that the new government would establish a standing army of professional soldiers and would disarm the 13 state militias made up of part-time citizen soldiers and revered as bulwarks against tyranny. These militia were the public or product of a world of civic duty and governmental compulsion, utterly alien to us today. Every white man aged 16 to 60 was enrolled. He was actually required to own and bring a musket or other military weapon. On June 8, 1789, James Madison, an ardent Federalist who had won election to Congress only after agreeing to push for changes to the newly ratified Constitution, proposed 17 amendments on topics ranging from the size of congressional districts to legislative pay to the right to religious freedom. One addressed by but sorry, one addressed the well-regulated militia and the right to keep and bear arms. We don't really know what he meant by it. And at the time, Americans expected to be able to own guns, a legacy of English common law and rights. But the overwhelming use of the phrase bear arms in those days referred to military activities. There is not a single word about an individual's right to a gun for self-defense or recreation in Madison's notes from the Constitutional Convention. Nor was it mentioned with a few scattered exceptions in the records of the ratification debates in the states. Nor did the U.S. House representatives discuss the topic as it marked up the Bill of Rights. In fact, the original version passed by the House included a conscientious objector provision, a well-regulated militia, it explained, composed of the body of the people, being the best security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, but no one religiously scrupulous of bearing arms shall be compelled to render military service in person. Though state militias eventually dissolved, for two centuries we had guns, plenty. We had gun laws in towns and states governing everything from where gunpowder could be stored to who could carry a weapon, and courts overwhelmingly upheld these restrictions. Gun rights and gun control were seen as going hand in hand. Four times between 1876 and 1939, the U.S. Supreme Court declined to rule that the Second Amendment protected individual gun ownership outside the context of a militia. As the Tennessee Supreme Court put it in 1840, 
A man in pursuit of deer, elk, and buffalo might carry his rifle every day for 40 years, and it would never be said of him that he had borne arms. Much, much less could it be said that a private citizen bears arms because he has a dirk or pistol concealed under his clothes or a spear in a cane. Q, the National Rifle Association. We all know of the organization's considerable power over the ballot box and legislation. Bill Clinton groused in 1994 after the Democrats lost their congressional majority. The NRA is the reason the Republicans control the House. Just last year, it managed to foster a successful filibuster of even a modest background check proposal in the U.S. Senate, despite 90% public approval of the measure. What is less known, and perhaps more significant, is its rising sway over constitutional law. The NRA was founded by a group of Union soldiers after the Civil War who, perturbed by their troops' poor marksmanship, wanted a way to sponsor shooting, training, and competitions. The group testified in support of the first federal gun law in 1934, which cracked down on the machine guns beloved by Bonnie and Clyde and other bank robbers. When a lawmaker asked whether the proposal violated the Constitution, the NRA witness responded, I have not given it any study from that point of view. The group lobbied quietly against the most stringent regulations, but its principal focus was hunting and sportsmanship, bagging deer, not blocking laws. In the late 1950s, it opened a new headquarters to house its hundreds of employees. Metal letters on the facade spelled out its purpose. Firearms, safety, education, marksmanship, training, shooting for recreation. Q to 1977. Gun group veterans still call the NRA's annual meeting that year the revolt at Cincinnati. After the organization's leadership had decided to move its headquarters to Colorado, signaling a retreat from politics, more than a thousand angry rebels showed up at the annual convention. By a four in the morning, the dissenters had voted out the organization's leadership. Activists from the Second Amendment Foundation and Citizens Committee for the right to keep and bear arms pushed their way into power. The NRA's new leadership was dramatic, dogmatic, and overtly ideological. For the first time, the organization formally embraced the idea that the sacred Second Amendment was at the heart of its concerns. The gun lobby's alert right word was part of a larger conservative backlash that took place across the Republican coalition in the 1970s. One after another, once sleepy traditional organizations galvanized as conservative activists wrested control. Conservatives tossed around the language of insurrection with the ardor of a Berkeley weatherman. The revolt at Cincinnati was followed by the tax revolt, which began in the California 1979, and the Sagebrush Rebellion against Interior Department land policies. All these groups shared a deep distrust of the federal government and spoke in the language of libertarianism. They formed a potent new partisan coalition. Politicians adjusted in turn. The 1972 Republican platform had supported gun control with a focus on restricting the sale of cheap handguns. Just three years later, in 1975, preparing to challenge Gerald R. Ford for a Republican nomination, Reagan wrote in Guns and Ammo magazine, The Second Amendment is clear or ought to be. It appears to have little of any leeway for the gun control advocate. By 1980, the GOP platform proclaimed, We believe the right of citizens to keep and bear arms must be preserved. Accordingly, we oppose federal registration of firearms. 
That year, the NRA gave Reagan its first ever presidential endorsement. Today at the NRA's headquarters in Fairfax, Virginia, oversized letters on the facade no longer refer to marksmanship and safety. Instead, the Second Amendment is emblazoned on a wall of the building's lobby. Visitors might not notice that the text is incomplete. It reads, The right of the people to bear and bear, keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. The first half, the part about the well-regulated militia, has been edited out. <clears throat> Form 1888, when law review articles first were indexed through 1959, every single one on the Second Amendment concluded it did not guarantee an individual right to a gun. The first to argue otherwise, written by a William and Mary Law student named Stuart R. Hayes, appeared in 1960. He began by inciting article, or citing an article in the NRA's American Rifleman magazine and argued that the amendment enforced a right of revolution of which the southern states availed themselves during what the author called the war between the states. At first, only a few articles echoed that view. And starting in the late 1970s, a squad of attorneys and professors began to churn out law review submissions, dozens of them at a prodigious rate. Funds, much of them from the NRA, flowed. Funds, much of them from the NRA, flowed freely. An essay contests grants to write book reviews, the creation of the academics for the Second Amendment, all followed. In 2003, the NRA Foundation provided one million to endow the Patrick Henry Professorship in Constitutional Law and the Second Amendment at George Mason University Law School. This fusillade of scholarship and pseudo-scholarship insisted that the traditional view shared by courts and historians was wrong. There had been colossal constitutional mistake. Two centuries of legal consensus aggregate must be overturned. If one delves into the claims these scholarships are making, a startling number of them crumble. Historians Jack Rakove, whose Pulitzer Prize-winning book Original Meanings, explored the founders' myriad views, notes. It is one thing to ransack the sources for a set of useful quotations, another to weigh their interpretive authority. There are, in fact, only a handful of sources from the period of constitutional formation that bear directly on the questions that lie at the heart of our current controversies about the regulation of privately owned firearms. If Americans had indeed been concerned with the impact of the Constitution on this right, the proponents of individual right theory would not have to recycle the same handful of references or to rip promising snippets of quotations from the text and speeches in which they are embedded. And they were plenty of promising snippets to rip. There was the ringing declaration from Patrick Henry, the great object is that every man be armed. The eloquent Patriots Declaration provided the title for the UR text for the gun rights movement. Stephen Holbrook's 1984 book, That Every Man Be Armed, it is cited reverentially in law review articles and scholarly texts. The Second Amendment professor at George Mason University is named after Henry. A $10,000 gift to the NRA makes you a Patrick Henry member. The quote has been plucked from Henry's speech at Virginia's ratifying convention for the Constitution in 1788. But if you look at the full text, he was complaining about the cost of both the federal government and the state army militia. The great object is that every man be armed, he said, and at, every, at a very great cost, we shall be doubly armed. In our word, other words, sure, let every man be armed, but only once. Far from a ringing statement of individual gun-toting freedom, was an early American example of a local politician complaining about government waste.
Thomas Jefferson offers numerous opportunities for pro-gun advocates. Um, historical research demonstrates that the founders of the NRA, even the NRA, proclaimed one prolific scholar, one loves to possess arms, wrote Thomas Jefferson, the premier intellectual of the day. To George Washington in 19, June 1919, or sorry, 1796, what a find. Oops. Jefferson was not talking about guns. He was writing to Washington asking for copies of some of old letters to have handy so he could issue a rebuttal in case he got attacked for a decision to be made as Secretary of State. The NRA website still includes the quote. You can go online to buy a t-shirt emblazoned with Jefferson's mangled words. In the effort to maintain brevity, I am going to leap ahead in some of this article and I'm going to go in to skip like a couple of pages here, otherwise I will never get done. Over the past decade, the idea of a Second Amendment right has become synonymous with conservatism, even with support of the Republican Party. In 1993, for example, New York Times mentioned gun control 388 times and a Second Amendment only 16. By 2008, overall mentions of the issue dropped 260, but the Second Amendment was mentioned 59 times. In the end, it was neither the NRA nor the Bush administration that pressed the Supreme Court to reverse its centuries-old approach, but a small group of libertarian lawyers who believed other gun advocates were too timid. They targeted a gun law passed by the local government in Washington, D.C. in 1976, perhaps the nation's richest or strictest, that barred individuals from keeping a loaded handgun at home without a trigger lock. They recruited an appealing plaintiff, Dick Heller, a security guard at the Thurgood, Marshall Federal Judiciary Building, who wanted to bring his work revolver home to his highest crime neighborhood. The NRA worried it lacked the five votes necessary to win. The organization tried to sideswipe the effort, filling or filing what Heller's lawyers called sham litigation to give courts an extra excuse to avoid a constitutional ruling. But the momentum that the NRA itself had set in motion proved unstoppable and the big case made its way to the Supreme Court. The argument presented in the District of Columbia versus Heller showed just how far the gun rights crusade had come. Nearly all the questions focused on arcane matters of colonial history. Few dealt with preventing gun violence, social science, findings, or the effectiveness of today's gun laws. The kinds of things judges might once have considered. In June 26, 2008, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that the Second Amendment guarantees a right to own a weapon, in common use to protect hearth and home. Scalia wrote the opinion, which he later called the vindication of his judicial philosophy. After the decision was announced, Heller stood on the steps of the court for a triumphant press conference. Held aloft behind him was a poster bearing that quote from Patrick Henry, unearthed by the scholars who had proven so important for the successful drive, let every man be armed. In January 2014, liberal activists jammed a conference room at the Open Society Foundations in New York City. They were there to hear former NRA President David Keynes. Of course, we really just invited David to coax in into giving us the secret of the NRA success, joked the moderator. Improbably, the gun movement's triumph has become a template for progressives, many of whom are appalled by the substance of the victories. Keen was joined by even Wolfson, the organizer Freedom to Mary, whose movement has begun to win startling victories for marriage equality in courts. Once conservatives fumed about activist courts enforcing newly articulated rights, women's right to reproductive choice, 
equal protection for all races. But just as they learned from the left's legal victories in those fields, today progressives are trying to relearn from their conservative counterparts. One lesson, patience. The fight for gun rights took decades. Another lesson, perhaps obvious, there is no substitute for political organizing. A century ago, the satirical character Mr. Dooley famously said in an Irish brogue, no matter where the Constitution follows, the flag or not, the Supreme Court follows, the election returns. Before social movements can win at the court, they must win at the ballot box. The five justices in the Heller majority were all nominated by presidents who themselves were NRA members. But even more important is this, activists turned their fight over gun control into a constitutional crusade. Modern political consultants may tell clients that the constitutional law and the role of the Supreme Court is too arcane for discussion at the proverbial kitchen table. Nonsense. Americans always have been engaged and at times enraged by constitutional doctrine. Deep notions of freedom and rights have retained totemic power. Today's Second Amendment supporters recognize that claiming the constitutional high ground goes far toward winning an argument. Modern debates about the Second Amendment have focused on whether it protects a private right of individuals to keep and bear arms or a right that can be exercised only through militia organizations like the National Guard. This question, however, was not even raised until long after the rights was adopted. Many of the founding generation believed that the governments are prone to use soldiers to oppress the people. English history suggests that this risk could be controlled by permitting the government to raise armies. For other purposes, such as responding to sudden invasions or other emergencies, the government could rely on a militia that consisted of ordinary citizens who supplied their own weapons and received some part-time unpaid military training. So as you can see, this argument's been going on for quite some time, and again, I'm going to have to shorten it. The article covers everything pretty succinctly, but for me to read it all would take me a couple hours, which I don't want to do, and I don't think you want to listen to me rant and rave for that long. Um, like I said, you can go in and my blog and find the article in its entirety. But what right now we have happening today in our government is what's called the H.R. 127. Did you know that under the H.R. 127, every gun owner will have three months to report all owned guns? You must also report where you keep your guns. All the above is put in a database, which the general public will have access to. You also must apply for a license to have any gun. To get the license, you must be 21 years old. It's military, huh? Interesting when they can enter at 18 and they're using guns and tanks and all that kind of stuff. Kind of interesting that as a private citizen, you have to be 21. Pass a background check. Pass a psyche valve, which is not a bad idea, I don't think. But whose criteria are we using for a psychiatric evaluation? Pay for 24 hours of training? Um, really? And purchase an insurance policy from the government, $800 per year, per gun. Pretty interesting, huh? Um, only rich can own guns now, I guess. Um, you won't be able to get a license if the following are met. You are evaluated as unfit. Again, very open for discussion. You have ever been diagnosed with depression? Hmm, I guess they don't treat people anymore for depression. They just have it forever. Have you ever had any brain disease? So... You could have a subdural hematoma. Is that considered a brain disease? I don't know. You get hit in the head by a baseball, and then you can't have a gun. If the evaluators think you have an alcohol problem, okay, how many hundreds and thousands of people in this country drink a little bit too much? 
The evaluators can also contact and interview your family and even your exes to determine if you are mentally sound. What ex is going to say their ex-husband or ex-wife was sound mentally? Mm, I don't know about that. Most of them hate them, so they're going to lie. What about military-style weapons? You will need a separate permit for those, and you will only be allowed magazines that hold 10 rounds or less. What about antique guns? You will need to prove ownership. Hmm. What if these are passed down from generation to generation? Do you have a bill of sale? I don't know. You will need to meet all requirements stated above. You won't be able to openly display them in your home. So you can't have a musket over your hearth, I guess. Or maybe even um, sabers. I don't know. So what is the government going to do if people violate this? The government will pose fines starting at $50,000 and a 10 to 15 year minimum in jail. You can kill somebody and get less time than that. Does this matter to you? Yes, call your local representative. So this is pretty much some of the major things. Again, my article has a complete text of the bill, which is, is usually quite lengthy, and I'm not about to read it all. But it goes to show you that the most laws and most elements of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights are are open to interpretation a little bit. I mean, there's a little bit of vagueness, I think intentionally put so, um, it'll keep the Constitution current, um, so it won't become outdated. I, I guess that's one of the things, an argument you can be made for it. Um, the more I read about the um, Amendment 2, um, it can be interpreted a couple different ways, which is not really a good thing for a law or one of our founding documents to be read or, or written. Um, it should have been more clearly um, focused in there. It should have been separated maybe by a period. Um, so it's like, okay, if you're a militia, then you can have a gun. If you're not a militia, you can't have a gun. Eh, I don't know. So you can see where there's room for argument there and discussion. Um, and as I also discussed that it, until just recently, we really haven't had any laws or judgments made that discuss this. And so now we do, but now we're trying to reverse those. So I firmly believe that people should be allowed to protect themselves and their house. If the cops aren't going to do it, if we're going to defund the police like so many uh, government officials want to do, then what choice do we have? If somebody breaks into our house, am I going to hit them over the head with a rolling pin when they have a knife or a gun of their own? Probably not a good idea. I'm going to just get to get my butt shot off. So I think um, gun ownership is good. I also think people should be trained, but should they be forced to be trained? I mean, what if you were raised with guns and your father taught you how to shoot and you're a marksman? Do you need to take a class every time you buy a gun? Probably not necessary. But if you're a first-time gun owner, maybe a good idea to have some kind of gun training program um, that you have to take before you can buy the gun so you don't shoot yourself in the foot or any place else or shoot your family members by accident. So whenever you say all or none, um, this country is not all or none. It's a big gray area. And so we need to think about that when we make our laws. All right, guys. Um, so I don't know if I've really solved very much, but I did give you a little bit of information. So as always, please be safe. I know I ranted did more than my usual 20 minutes or so, um, but this is an important area for discussion. And um, like I said, if I would have read the whole thing, it would have taken a couple hours, if not more. So um, again, have a great day. And until next week, goodbye.